to Gladiatrix. I am woman and hear me roar. Welcome to Gladiatrix. I'm your host, Malini Sarma. Every week, I will be speaking with women from all over the world who will be sharing their journeys, their stories about overcoming their fears and achieving great things that they thought they never could. So if you don't want to miss a story, make sure you subscribe. In today's episode, I will be speaking with Zara Ali. Zara lives in Lahore, Pakistan. When she was 16 years old, she developed a giant cell tumor in her back. Unfortunately, due to a misdiagnosis, she ended up being paralyzed below the waist. She's paraplegic and needs a wheelchair. She's now 25. What is fascinating about this story is the fact that Zara has not given up hope. She is still looking for a cure, and her attitude remains upbeat. This is her story. Hi, Zara. I'm so happy to have you on um, the podcast today. Um, I know your story is very inspiring. I'm sure there are lots of young people in similar situations who could, um, who could learn a lot. Um, uh, you're, you're young, you're 25 years old, and you live in Lahore in Pakistan, and you had a giant cell tumor that caused you to become paraplegic. And your journey from where you, where you started to where you are today has been quite phenomenal. And I really want the rest of the world to hear it. So why don't you tell um, the listeners, you know, a little bit about how all this came about? What started? Hello, Malini. Hello. How are you? It's really great to be on your podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, I would love to talk about my journey, uh, and I would love. I would like to talk about how it transformed me into a better person. Well, I I talk about it like it was a rebirth, a reincarnation, because I explored a side of me, a, a very uh, phenomenal side of me, which was sort of unaware. Um, I. I was 16 years old when I was about to finish my school. Um, I was going to give my O-level examinations in May. And in January 2009, uh, I, I sort of started having really electrifying pain in my hands. And I couldn't sit. Uh, to be very precise, I, I really remember this day in school. Um, I couldn't sit and I kept standing. And you know, my teacher was like, please sit down. And she was getting annoyed. And she sent me home. So that day, it's, I'm mentioning that day because from that day onwards, uh, everything went downhill. And uh, I went home and I, I was in phenomenal pain. Well, after that, um, you know, I had all my uh, tests and all those painful days of going through various type of things and, you know, doctors saying different stuff. And well, later, Obviously, um, the medical facilitation in Pakistan is not so good. So I was uh, a victim of wrong uh, diagnosis. And I was given um, treatment for tuberculosis of the bones. Um, Well, that (laughs) didn't go well with my body. And the tumor, which was sort of not um, harming my body before and could have been treated at an early stage, uh, got got worse with those medications. And... um, I, I'll tell you really, um, it's a really dramatic thing, but it, that's what exactly happened with me. Uh, I had pain in my arm, as I told you, in my hand and in my back. I, could, I was on bed rest. But one night, 
um, I slept uh, in my bed and I was all fine. I had pain and everything. But when I woke up the early, uh, the next morning, uh, I couldn't stand up. I could not feel my legs. I could not, um, you know, it, it was, I, I was in a shock. And I feel that shock was pr- my first reaction. But then I just went numb. And I remember my sisters were talking to me, my parents talking to me, and I was numb. But I think now that I look back, I feel uh, I was... I don't know. I felt a strength, you know, I was facing it. Well, later I had to undergo uh, two major surgeries, two spinal surgeries. One was the uh, biopsy and the other one was um, uh, decompression of the spinal cord. Um, the second surgery was the most critical one um, because, uh, you know, um, it was a treatment. Well, on the other hand, the first one was just um, diagnosing the whole situation inside. Well, um, the doctors weren't really uh, happy with the results. That they were really sure that I had cancer, and hmm. they were really persistent that you know the tests are not coming right or something's not right with the results. But uh, well, um, we had two to three laboratories where we got the tests um, rechecked, and well, they were then sure. Um, I had my surgery, uh, but. Uh, later, when I came out of the operation theater, they informed my family that, you know, still a part of tumor was attached to my spine and they could not um, sort of get there mm-hmm. because it, it required an incision, which was similar to an open heart surgery. Mm-hmm. So um, they, they didn't have the permit to do that and they couldn't uh, completely cure me. So, well, I was hung between being recovered and not recovered. And I'm still sort of trying to move towards that space of recovery. Okay. Um, so before you go ahead, I just had another question. So when, when you, you were first diagnosed, you were 16, right? Yes, so yes. when you went through all the tests and, um, you know, they were trying to figure out what was going on. So when, when did you do your first surgery? How old were you when, when that happened? Uh, all right. Um, those tests, you know, uh, at a, you know, I was really young and 16 is not an age that, you know, you, you are ready to go into those big machines, the CD mm-hmm. scans, the MRI mm-hmm. machines. And I, I talk about the MRI scans the most. People don't understand how horrifying these things can be. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, after the first MRI, I was, uh, again, I was numb to the experience and I gained a strength which I didn't knew I had. And then I went into the test like it was nothing. It was, I had almost six to seven MRI scans in mm-hmm. that, that frame of time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, well, that was really hard. I'll tell you, uh, anyone who's listening to this and goes to MRI scans are the bravest people because going into that machine is it's mortifying. I'm telling you. Well, so you were, um, you were still uh, like 16. I um, mean, that yes. same year, right? When this happened, yes, exactly. when, when you yeah. did the MRI scan. And so your first surgery was also when you were 16. Yes. Yes. This, this uh, and then the happened. second surgery happened like very quickly or like there was a big gap between the surgeries. No, no, no. The surgery happened um, in within two months, uh, one month of my first surgery. So this, there was oh, wow. a span of one month uh, between my two major spinal surgeries. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, so basically it was all within the same year. So, yes. and so then after, okay. So then after that, when they said that, when they said they didn't have a permit, is it because they didn't have the expertise to figure out what was wrong? Is that? No, uh, no, no. Well, there's this um, uh, permit form that they get signed from the parents and they have specifications that they can approach my spine, but they didn't have an uh, a permit to approach uh, from the 
uh, front because you know it the surgery that i had was basically on my back right mm-hmm. so uh, the incision that they wanted to make uh, to approach the tumor which was uh, on the other side of my spine was going to be like an open heart surgery from the front okay. so they couldn't make two incisions in one surgery because they didn't have my parents permit for that oh okay and you think that that delay caused you know the yes. injury to become worse is that what absolutely. happened absolutely Absolutely. Uh, well, um, I think obviously I feel uh, perhaps it was on the part of the doctors or um, I feel it's just that there was not enough uh, expertise in Pakistan to make that sort of incision because later I got to know that this this is such a rare tumor that um, in the world there are about 36 to 37. I heard such such a stat. Wow. A very less number of patients in the world who have a joint cell tumor. Um, and, um, you know, in Pakistan, I'm sure they're very less. So uh, my parents were not ready to make that sort of a jump or that sort of a um, move. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is why. Okay. So then what happened? I mean, what happened after the surgeries? And then you realized that, you know, they, they weren't able to, um, you know, do the surgery from the front. I mean, so then at that point, what happened? I mean, you were still in the hospital and then you, did your parents just decide that, okay, you need to come home and we need to figure out how to live in this particular okay. situation? What happened then? Mm-hmm. Well, um, well, the doctors informed my parents right after the surgery that, you know, it's not completely done and, you know, we're not ready for that sort of a big move. You know, we can't just go into another surgery because, you know, as I told you, the first surgery and the second surgery had a very small span. And this third surgery was going to be very crucial because it, it first it was a very difficult surgery. And other than that, not many people had, you know, that sort of an incision and that sort of an approach to the spinal cord. So my parents, when, when they heard um, the doctors talk about it so skeptically, obviously they're going to be nervous. They were mm-hmm. not they were not ready they were not happy with the whole approach so well um other than that the doctor the the attitude of this um uh the doctors was not really serious i think because um you know they let me go uh right after like a week or so after my surgery and i i remember that day uh malini it was um i was stiff Mm -hmm. my whole body was really stiff that my pain and obviously i told you no support no rehabilitation nothing so um they literally shoved me into the car, you know. Oh I remember that day because it was so hard for me, mm-hmm. so hard for my parents to see me in that way, you know, shoving me into the car. It was difficult to know, like, how do I shift a patient who can't move his body, his or her body, and, you know, how do I get that person into a car? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was the first day that it hit me, you know. It's mm-hmm. my new life. I have to, you know, understand, you know, getting right. into the car, doing normal stuff with, not being able to use my lower body. Mm-hmm. So you, all all of the things that you would take for granted before now, it is like you have to figure out how to live in a different yeah. way. Okay. I, so now- I- Mm-hmm. I would like to add one small thing that mm-hmm. I learned um, mm-hmm. uh, because it's really I really talk about it. You know, uh, when you move your thumb or your toes or anything, you know, we don't understand that. Um, you know, it's, it's just much a small thing. You hold something and then you do it. But when I got into the state and when I got into the surgery and then I couldn't move my lower body, I realized how big of a blessing this is. Mm-hmm. You know, you can move your toe, you can pull up your body, you can stand up, you can take a step. I, I think it's really important to understand the smallest um, blessings mm-hmm. that we have. And, you know, after you, I, this uh, accident, I think I started take you know, looking at things very differently. Even raising my hand is a blessing. 
Right, right. So now um, I'm, I'm presuming you had like initially, especially during your initial recovery, you were in a lot of pain. Um, did they give you like pain medication? Did you have any of that or, or no? Um, yes. Uh, well, I was on um, medications, pain control medications. Then we had steroids. Steroids, what steroids do to your body is that they, they really make, um, you know, it's really difficult to manage steroids. And obviously, as I told you, no, there was no uh, lookup into my case after I got out of the hospital. I was told that, you know, you take steroids, slowly, slowly just leave it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I had steroids and because of those steroids, I wasn't really, um, uh, you know, a thick person, you know, a so fat person or a little heavy, you know, I was really thin, right? Mm-hmm. So after I got into my surgery the steroids literally made me so swelled up my Mm -hmm. face was swelled my body was swelled Mm -hmm. I was eating more I had acne pimples my face I couldn't look into the mirror you know Mm -hmm. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm not even joking I did Mm -hmm. not look into the mirror for almost one year because I did not recognize the person who was I when I used to look into the mirror I I started crying because mm-hmm. I, I couldn't recognize the person anymore because that wasn't me. Mm-hmm. My face was swollen. My eyes were like dug, sunk into my face and I had pimples on my face. And, you know, I was really, really uh, picky about my skin products. I used to be very, um, you know, I used to take care of my face a lot. And then it was really hard. Mm-hmm. But obviously with time, you know, I, I took my time. But then one day I actually, I had this therapy with myself. I looked at myself and that day, I feel it's important for everyone to have that day to accept yourself for who you are. Mm-hmm. You are not going to change. You're going to, you're going to have to accept that. Look into the mirror and say, yes, that's me. That's, that's my truth. And I have to be with that. And that day I felt, you know, I, I, liberated myself from the fear of looking into the mirror I'll, I'll tell you, you know, are, you, are, you still, are you still taking steroids or did you stop taking it I stopped taking steroids within the first year of my surgery but okay. uh, the effects the effects of those kind of uh, steroids just don't leave your body within years right so for two right. to three years I had that very bad swelling on my body and it was mm-hmm. difficult to sort of manage it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um, now you must say I have to commend you because you at a very young age, you've gone through so much and you, uh, you've grown up so much in the last 10 years, right? Just by going Mm -hmm. through all the stuff, which takes a lot, it takes a lot of courage and Mm -hmm. you are the eldest in your family. You've got two younger sisters and I'm sure, you know, the people around you and, and your parents have been a huge support for you. Um, what were some, what was some of the things that you, felt and your you know your your sisters and your family felt when while you were going through this i know all of you had gone th- gone through a lot yes. of trauma just watching and being there with you mm-hmm. and helping you support can yes. you talk a little bit about that yes yes uh well uh, when somebody in your family undergoes something like this it's not just one person suffering from that it's the entire family a unit is suffering because you know you don't especially in pakistan the desi families i would say you know we live in a setup where everyone is interconnected Mm -hmm. so i was interconnected with the small unit and you know all my two of my sisters, my parents, they were all with me in this journey. And, and I couldn't have gone through this journey without their support. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got home, as I told you, there was no rehabilitation. We had to sort out the things ourselves. So um, the first thing was, you know, getting me to the bed, you mm-hmm. know, getting me into a bed. 
so all my family four of them used to literally you know hold me up get me into the bed you know then get me changed then get me um to eat you know everything mm-hmm. so as the time passed we you know we used to understand, as a family we used to get a lot of things that you know um you know when you go out you know mm-hmm. people would look at us look at mm-hmm. me and you know it was not something that we were used to mm-hmm. we we were look we're living you know there's one thing that i would like to mention and it's really a very funny and a, a sort of a tip for the people to know um in every situation i've learned that my family had you know finding a little happiness into the most saddest part right mm-hmm. so when i used to come back in my room like i would go out in in the drawing room or wherever and then when i got into my room my lit, my youngest sister used to dance you know mm-hmm. bhangra we have mm-hmm. this thing she used to do bhangra in front of me mm-hmm. and uh you to make me feel better you know uh-huh. i was going to bed and this that and she practiced this for one year and i think these small things uh-huh. you know making um, the moments lighter making things easier for everyone i feel i think i would tell the people that things are not going to get easy you right. have to find the glitter in every gloom yourself mm-hmm. and that's what my family helped me do they did not let me feel like an outsider like mm-hmm. the person they didn't feel they didn't feel bad for me mm-hmm. they made me feel good because of my strength mm-hmm. they made me reinvent a courage that i didn't knew i had well mm-hmm. because of that behavior when you start feeling normal mm-hmm. things start getting normal mm-hmm. so uh i would tell the listeners to actually uh, understand this that difficulties are not going to pass by on their own you know mm-hmm. we have to make things lighter for ourselves mm-hmm. no and i think that's really important and i have to commend you on your in the courage that you have because it is very um difficult and i know you love dance i know i love dance too mm, so yeah. when you're watching when you're watching yeah. somebody else dance you also want to dance right no. so i think it makes you happy you don't know <laughs> <laughs> you don't know i loved dancing you know i have this beautiful memory of my uh, own uh that you know i used to turn on bollywood music it was really uh, it was my favorite thing to do uh-huh. you know after everything i've did in my day while i was fine i would turn on music and then dance for like hours and i don't know when you know that became a passion and i love dancing mm-hmm. and after this um uh, injury i after i got out and i was in a wheelchair mm-hmm. i used to see my sisters dancing and that was i would say the hardest part was watching them dance and not being able to dance mm-hmm. so within two years last two years i i i reinvented my passion and i started dancing in the wheelchair awesome. and i would use my upper body and i would i would make moves and i would dance and literally the, i remember one day last year i turned on uh, a playlist and i danced for like 2 hours straight wow. and the, with the upper body uh-huh. so i think i i was really happy i felt so light and so happy to just dance to mm-hmm. be able to move my upper body in a way and to be able to create the rhythm and you know it's it's just beautiful to exercise your passion yep. um within the capacity you have yeah yeah no that that's very true so now i mean I, you know just from how um, how you've dealt with the situation how your family has dealt with the situation they've been very supportive and you know they never made you feel they always made you lift you up you know instead of making mm-hmm. you feel bad 
but um, I'm sure you must have seen around you kind of the some of the conversations that people have, like you were saying, you know, people are, you're in a wheelchair and people kind of look at you and mm. they make their like, snide remarks, you know, especially when you're a young girl and uh, mo- mostly people at this time, I, I know even for me when I was that age, they were, you know, looking to, oh, we need to get you mm. married, you know, so how is, how is some of those conversations, I'm sure it must have been really hard, been really hard it for is. your parents as well. So how, what, what are some of those uh, conversations that have been happening? Um, I think uh, people get very insensitive, even though at points, at some point they do care for you, but mm-hmm. they don't understand how their words impact a person who's actually undergoing an ordeal herself, right? Mm-hmm. So especially from the people who don't understand uh, this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to hear a lot of words, you know, that she's not going to get married. How will she, ha- how will she have kids? Mm-hmm. You know, she's not normal. Oh, you know, they were sympathetic towards my family. Mm-hmm. And that hurt me because mm-hmm. I was trying to be normal. I was trying to live again. And then I didn't, the last thing that I needed was sympathy from the people, you know, who were, who were my loved ones. Mm-hmm. So perhaps it's because of, awareness that they didn't have or I I don't know something they used to say some really insensitive stuff like uh, I am uh, I'm a very devoted um, uh, you know uh, I I pray five Mm -hmm. times a day and everything Mm -hmm. so one small example would be that you know well because of my condition I can't go and you know uh, you know go and do uh, wash my face every one hour wash my Pay, uh, mm-hmm. go to the toilet every time so I have my own um, thing mm-hmm. so the people used to come up and you know I used to read namaz and they would come up to me and say how do you even do wazoo five times a day mm-hmm. and I would look at their faces that how can they go ahead and have the courage to ask me this type, sort of a thing mm-hmm. which is such a personal matter right. and at one point I stopped answering I to be very honest Malini I just stopped answering because I did not care I did not bother to answer their queries mm-hmm. I did not have to right um, mm-hmm. Well, I went out, I think going out uh, and the people who conduct their lives um, Mm -hmm. in a wheelchair Mm -hmm. is they are really brave. And I don't think they're just an inspiration. They're living their life to the fullest. Right. Right. Um, So I used to go to the malls. I started going out with my friends again. It was really empowering. I can't tell you going out to a restaurant, sitting there, having the waiter to bring create dishes in front of you. It was the most wonderful thing that I started doing. Mm -hmm. So when I started going out, I started noticing that people look at you in a very awkward way, like you're an alien, Mm -hmm. like you don't fit in, but Mm -hmm. I was fitting in. I was trying to fit in and Mm -hmm. the society kept looking at me like I wasn't a part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember I went to this mall, I was sitting there and a person actually passed by and he turned back to look at me I was I I was so uncomfortable that day um but there you know it come there came a point that I said okay it doesn't matter let Mm -hmm. them look you know I have something in me that they keep looking at me Mm -hmm. and even still uh today I when I go out people do look at me but now I have a very different approach I say okay you can look at me. I will not stop going out because of the fear that they will judge me for mm-hmm. my looks, for mm-hmm. how, how I look. Because mm-hmm. I'm not the, like them doesn't mean that I'm not um, someone normal. I am a normal person. I have mm-hmm. the right to go out without being judged or mm-hmm. looked at. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, ha- at any point in time, have you like gotten mad at them and said, what are you looking at? Or have you told mm-hmm. your family often, you know, like when relatives or somebody saying, hi, you know, I don't know. Have you like, call them out on yes, it or I did like- I did okay a few times I think I I 
think I'm a very tolerant person, but at points you just lose it, you know. Mm-hmm. So I I talked back to few of the people, but I did not actually had a showdown with anybody. Okay. But I simply sat down with a few people and talked to them about how it is very insensitive to talk about such personal problems you know mm-hmm. things that you know like why don't you go to the bathroom or why mm-hmm. are you wearing this you're becoming mm-hmm. fat why mm-hmm. do you have this mm-hmm. why do that so I tried to talk but mm-hmm. I did not have a showdown I'm not that I'm not <laughs> that uh, aggressive I would say <laughs> no no you'd saying that is actually kind of bold because I know in a very in a typical like in a Desi you know community it is very normal for people to come up to your face and just kind of say you know why are you doing like this or you know mm. why are you wearing that and you know and asking you very personal questions it's like wait it's not your yes. business why are you asking me these things they they have I think the worst part of Desi society is they don't have a filter you know right. they have filters where they, they, they're not required uh-huh. but they have filter they don't have a filter where you need to filter out your words you yeah. know they just go ahead and say whatever it's really I think it's very important to talk uh, out uh, mm-hmm. about it because sometimes like I took it very positively mm-hmm. but some people don't take it positively and it goes very badly for other people and someone can be really offended get depressed with what you say mm-hmm. uh, but Desi community sort of don't understand this. They just want to ask you. They need information and that's all they need. So have you have you educated them? I mean, I know you were talking about how, you know, because um, you're in a wheelchair, you probably have to make accommodations. So when you're traveling, you're wanting mm. to go out, you know, having ramps, like even in the school, you were talking about, mm. you know, you'd have to delay your exams. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, um, because I got into a wheelchair, we have to find out a solution to, you know, get me into the car and get me out of the car. Because I was, uh, initially, my parents used to literally pull me into the car. So, um, slowly, as I told you that, um, I started normalizing stuff. So, I looked up and, you know, I saw a shifting board that was available in America. So, I got a really good idea, tricky idea, which was again in collaboration with my father. Mm-hmm. We we got to a man who used to work, who is a carpenter, right? So mm-hmm. he made a little thing, which mm-hmm. was made out of wood and steel, you know, it was like a, a shifting board, mm-hmm. but not a traditional shifting board that is available on Amazon and other places. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I couldn't get it, obviously. So I made it uh, with the, you know, things th- th- that were available at that time. And uh, with that, with the help of that board, I was able to shift into the car myself. Nobody touching me, nobody help, helping me or anything. Mm-hmm. So that little thing was really empowering. Again, a mm-hmm. little uh, step forward, mm-hmm. I would say. Because uh, with the help of that board, I was able to go anywhere I wanted without anyone to babysitting me. Especially my mother and father. Because I didn't like you know, bothering them because I had to go to give an exam, because I had to work with my friends. Mm-hmm. So after that day, I, w- I felt really relieved that you know, I can go out if I have someone to drive me to that place. Mm-hmm. So um, after that, um, the one thing that I experienced the most was that um, in, I, I have a car parked. And I'm shifting out of my car, right? Mm -hmm. So people keep looking at you. They keep disturbing you, distracting you, despite knowing the fact, you know, this person is going to take a little bit of time because he's not going to jump out, jump out of the car. Mm -hmm. He's going to slowly shift into the seat and Mm -hmm. then you can go. Mm -hmm. Patience is the thing that lacks the most in Mm -hmm. these people. And they kept honking and they didn't have the patience to stop and, you know, keep, let me get into my seat. And, you know, these things really demotivate you. 
Mm-hmm. At times I literally cried because of this panic because it was so bad people mm-hmm. kept looking at you and you're trying to be normal you're trying to get into the seat without anyone's help and they keep looking at you like you know I'm taking their time or wasting their time there is no awareness of um disabled parking in Pakistan that much mm-hmm. only to the places like malls or anywhere but not in the local places mm-hmm. so whenever i went out to one of the restaurants or anywhere it the most difficult and nervous part was going to be shifting into the chair without anyone honking behind my car mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you don't you don't yeah somebody's driving you right so you're not driving yes no no not yet but okay. i really aim to do so <laughs> okay no no that's great that's great so um you did say that even having ramps and stuff you know they they have yeah. it's not it's not very common to have so if you're um, going to movies and stuff like that right? i couldn't i uh, well absolutely in pakistan and especially some parts uh, of the subcontinent still disability is seen a little bit as taboo right mm-hmm. so they're not considered to be a part of your society there's they you don't want to accommodate accommodate their needs you don't want to accommodate their wants so uh, whenever i uh, when i started going out i saw there was no accommodation of ramps for me to get into the places mm-hmm. um Firstly, uh, I used to say, okay, it's fine, it's normal, you know, not everyone is going out in a chair, it's fine. But then I realized when I got associated with this uh, organization called uh, the Able Plus, uh, the woman associated with me, Miss Saima, she made me realize that it's it's my right to be able to access every building. Mm-hmm. and it's my right to be able to sort of have that confidence to talk to them about it right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. then um i started taking uh, these kind of matters very seriously and i if i am facing it many mm-hmm. other people who have disabilities might be facing it mm-hmm. so i talked about it i wrote about one restaurant in my blog Mm-hmm. they they had the worst ramp experience they made a slide in the name of a ramp and my sister almost fell and i mm-hmm. almost fell off the ramp mm-hmm. so that experience jolted me really badly so i wrote about it also and then um with the so in association with this um organization we were working for places mostly restaurants uh, government areas malls and other places to be accessible for the disabled people mm-hmm. um i went to this meeting and this lady she was she was doing her masters she told a story that she was going to give an examination and she went to the center and she uh, there were like 20 steps Mm-hmm. right um and you imagine one person in a chair they can do anything even i feel they were more um uh, empowered than me right mm-hmm. but they went on and she said she had to wait for like 1 hour 2 hour she kept telling them to you know let her in but nobody was there to pick her up and take her to the center mm-hmm. and she had to give up on the examination and it is so heartbreaking that she couldn't give her exam and mm-hmm. i feel these things are really happening in pakistan and they this should stop and i'm really happy that i am associated with such a organization which is working to make these spaces more accessible for the people who are in a chair like me mm-hmm. so now you have um and i think this whole experience you, uh, you said uh, you're currently working on your um under your bachelor's degree and you're also mm-hmm. you you've written a blog or you're writing you have a blog that is talking about mm-hmm. your experiences yes. you've also yes. written a book and um, your, another book is coming out right mm-hmm. yes yes um in 2017 i met miss saima who i just mentioned mm-hmm. she introduced me to freelance writing a way to learn a way to earn money um in the comfort of my home 
and i started practicing it and i can't tell you malini when i got the first 500 rupees of my earning in my hand the happiness mm-hmm. the satisfaction the feeling of content that i had i cannot describe that in words that 500 i clicked a picture of that 500 and kept it with me to you know sort of remember when i don't have anything i'd say well i lo- i earned that money when i was sitting in my chair at my home in the comfort of you know with my laptop well that was the first step and then i made my blog i shared my story there and i got a really great response mm-hmm. um you know people were very welcoming or uh, very uh, appreciative towards my work and obviously when you get i am sort of a person who gets really um excited on smaller things right so that small boost was enough for me to you know continue on the blogging and uh, now it's been 2 3 years that i've been blogging i have some great stuff out there you know i write about my experience i write stories i write short stories reviews um my wisdom i say wisdom is a big word but well I, when you have such experiences in life you sort of become wise even if you don't want to <laughs> but you become wise <laughs> and you know i feel the biggest motto that i have behind my blog is that um written written words when you write something it stays there mm-hmm. you know i would go i would leave this world and you know things would be ending but my words would stay so i think it's my responsibility to share my journey with others in the form of a blog or a book or anything so that people who are struggling with similar problems might be you know get help from it mm-hmm. they might uh, you know take help from what i experienced they might avoid the mistakes that i made um it's i feel this is a responsibility it's on my you know i feel it's a responsibility that i fulfill by sharing my wisdom by sharing what i learned so my blog is all about it i'll write about things i write about the social problems and i write about how disability is being um you know avoided ignored in this society mm-hmm. and other than that i think i explored a new side of myself um in december 2019 when i learned that i am a storyteller wow. <laughs> i yeah. i accepted myself yeah i learned that because um i'll tell you marini i've never talked about it but i think from childhood i always thought that i had stories in my mind mm-hmm. in my head i used to make stories and you know live those characters but then when i was able to write that down in words in the form of a novella i i gained i thought yes and then when people read that book and connected to that book i said oh i think i was a storyteller from a very long time but now i sort of um invested some energy and here i am i i told the story and people know that story and um malini it's a beautiful feeling yes. it's wonderful feeling when your story is being read by someone and they know your characters you know you live those characters for so many time and it's it's wonderful my book is actually also based on a woman mm-hmm. who faces something really um bad and you know she gains a dis- sort of a disability not real disability but then you know she strives to find real love that she really does in the end so well if some you are thinking to read that book it's a really good read and it's a really small read too okay and and this is available right this is available online to purchase that um yes yes buy. yes okay it is okay. available on most of the online uh, bookstores and i'll share the link with you okay. but you know it's really small novella but I think you will have a good experience while reading it because you know I think uh, I feel all my fiction and non-fiction work is somehow uh, based on my own experience. 
uh, mm-hmm. what I experienced through this journey and how I would like to, um, you know, share uh, this journey with others in the form of fiction also. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, now you, you, you know, you said you have a blog and you've written a couple, uh, you've written a novella, your, your other book is coming out later this year. Um, have you gotten any traction? Has, you know, have, have any organizations gotten a hold of you? Cause I know you were talking about, you want to work on, um, spinal injury patients, rehabilitation. That is your goal, mm-hmm. right? And you yes. haven't given up hope. I mean, you're still looking for a cure for your, for your injury. I mean, yes. um, yes. you haven't given up hope on that. So have you gotten any traction or um, mm-hmm. if not, I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, this podcast will kind of, you know, spread the word and other people will also know about your story because I'm sure there are lots mm-hmm. of other people in similar situations. Yes, I think, um, yes, my uh, hope is something uh, I think that keeps me going. I think the only thing that holds on uh, is hope. And if I had given hope, uh, I would have not survived that I know for sure, mm-hmm. because I think the uh, you know, in this situation where I feel there's a, a closed end, there's nowhere to go because there's not, I don't have an option, a medical um, solid option to go with and then get out of it and be fine. So um, I haven't got any other than alternate medicine and this, that no medical, um, rip, you know, solution is there for me right now in Pakistan. But uh uh, I think my ultimate goal after, you know, facing these kind of things uh, uh, is that I want to establish a rehabilitation center for the disabled people in Pakistan, because like me, many other people would have faced the same thing. They just get out of the hospital <clears throat> and they don't have anywhere to go. They don't know how to sit into a vehicle. They don't know how to change their clothes. They don't mm-hmm. know how to be, you know, like a normal person to live, to earn. Yeah, yeah independent. Mm-hmm. So I think the rehabilitation concept in Pakistan is very nearly zero. Okay. Nobody really talks about it. And my goal, my ultimate aim is to establish something like that mm-hmm. and work on it to, um, you know, make people more independent and, you know, get them education. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel I uh, also like, I would like to tell uh, that um, education is also not, truly accessible to the people who are in a wheelchair or maybe in the bed, you know, they, they're bedridden, Mm -hmm. but they have a mind, they can work. And I Mm -hmm. feel my motive is to bring education to those people who are bedridden too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so in the long run, mm -hmm. mm -hmm, I would like to, you know, work on this thing to bring education um, and make freelancing more available and um, available for the people who are disabled um, who are at their homes, who don't have too much uh, accommodation to go out and do their jobs. And even they, they you know, make normalizing, giving jobs to the disabled people because most of the people, they just avoid this and it is wrong. I think there should be equal opportunities for the disabled community as well. Okay. So do you want to just um, give a shout out to what is your blog called? So um, people can yes. go check it out. Yes, my blog is called Zahra Speaks. I would be giving in the link. Um, If you like to read stories about, uh, um, you like to read stories, you would want to be motivated, you want to read something good, something worthwhile about the social problems, about anything. I have a lot of variety there. Please go out and check my blog out. Um, It's really awesome. And if you like, please do comment on it. 
Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Zara. This is such a, it's been a um, great talking to you. And I'm so impressed with you because you're such a, even though you've gone through such trauma at such a young age, you're, you're like an old soul who know, who has learned so much and you're so happy and calm and you are, you bring such a positive outlook. You're not like, um, it's very common to see people who are in this situation, like, you know, who are paraplegic, mm. who are depressed because they feel like mm-hmm. they can never get out of this. But you have mm. so much hope and you're giving hope to so many other people just by talking and writing about it. I think that is so, so impressive. And I'm so impressed by Thank that. You. Um, Thank you and so much, Molly. I'm, I'm really hoping that, you know, um, you are able to meet your goal. And I know you want to uh, bring rehabilitation to spinal injury patients. And if there's anything I can do to help, you know, please do let me know. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that we got to connect and um, mm-hmm. I'm really good luck and uh, best of Thank the you. very best of luck to you um, for your future, um, future. Thank ventures. you. Thank you so much. Malini. It has been a great pleasure talking to you too. And it's really empowering to talk about my journey because as of now I was writing about it, but now I got to talk to the people. Um, and I think uh, the last thing I would like to tell everyone is, please don't give up on hope. There is always hope. There is always light at the end of the tunnel. There's always something to smile about. Um, Situations are going to be hard. You're going to go through stuff. But I would tell you to keep your head high and be happy and find that one light in the inner room of darkness. Please. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to subscribe. And if you love the show, please leave a review. Just remember, you could be one story away from being inspired.